Hello, and welcome to all our deadly friends. We're thrilled to bring you Season 1, Episode 7 of Dead to Rights, the podcast. Today we've got a very special deadly friend, author Diamond Wilson. Diamond graduated from Bozeman Christian High School in 2001. In 2006, she graduated from Montana State University with a degree in modern languages and literature in Spanish, German, and French. In 2010, she finished her M.A. at Washington State University, where she studied Peninsular and Latin American literature, linguistics, technology in the classroom, pedagogy, and second language acquisition. She currently is a Voices columnist for the Dallas Morning News and teaches French and Spanish in DISD. This week's episode also offers our Readers on the Run segment, Low Roller, a short story by yours truly, featuring petite and plucky private eye Penelope Cannon. Penelope first appeared in my short story collection titled Knowing Penelope and has since popped up in North on the Yellowhead and Other Crime Stories, Carrick Publishing, 2016. I'm delighted with the response so far to our podcast. The goal for 2018 is simple. 52 weeks, 52 authors. Please share the Dead to Rights podcast with all your deadly friends. Rate us at your favorite listening app and please subscribe. For those who may not own a smartphone, we'll be bringing Dead to Rights to YouTube in the very near future. We want to connect with readers all over the world and introduce them to these talented authors. Not to rest on our laurels, we're out there recruiting authors from all over the world to bring you their insights into the book industry. We've got fantastic interviews lined up with the likes of Miriam Cobras in Germany, Tony Rakestraw in California, and Rob Brunet in my own hometown of Toronto, to name only a few. So, here's the pitch. If you're a published author, and yes, you must be published, and you'd like to be interviewed on Dead to Rights, contact me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com. In the subject line, please say, schedule me for an interview. In other news, Carrick Publishing continues its endeavor to produce great titles for our associated authors. Stay tuned. Down the road, I'll be highlighting a few of our works. Now, nestle in those earbuds, get on your walking shoes, or sit back in that easy chair, whatever your preference, and prepare to listen to my little story, Low Roller. Low Roller by Donna Carrick It isn't just that the holidays bring out the worst in people. Sure, some of us blame the stress and bustle of the season for causing family arguments, a trail of mini-crises that we leave in our wake as we shop, cook, and clean. The painful struggle to maintain permanent smiles throughout a marathon of entertaining. It isn't easy being gracious for weeks at a stretch. But really, we shouldn't blame it on the holidays. Some people are just miserable all year round. The Christmas season, with its artificial twinkle of good cheer, serves to highlight the fact that some souls are bleak at the best of times. Staying cheerful is easier for people like me. I've got no family to speak of, except for Aunt Rachel, and she never puts up much fuss over Christmas. You see, she never married, 
so her festive table, elaborately decorated as it is, seats only the two of us. She detests turkey, preferring a nice steak or a bit of ham. We usually eat in silence, but it's a comfortable silence. I never doubt her love. It's her sense of tradition that could use a shot in the arm. Would you like more tea, dear? No, thank you, Maddie, I said. I'd be awake half the night as it was, hopped up on caffeine and peeing a blue streak. What did you say your name is? Maddie's daughter, Delilah, forty if she was a day, pointed her pen my way. Penelope Cannon, I replied, hiding my annoyance for Maddie's sake. Delilah would have been a good-looking woman, except for the permanently pinched look where a smile would have been welcome. And how do you know my mother, she said, scribbling down my name. I couldn't blame her for being suspicious. From where she sat, it would appear odd, me on the young side of thirty-something and claiming a close relationship to Maddie Oakes, a sixty-five-year-old widow of comfortable means and tremendous elegance. I was tempted to say, we met in yoga class, but I chewed on my shortbread cookie instead. You see, I knew the truth about Delilah. I knew she seldom, if ever, spent time with Maddie. The only reason she was here today was because of that great unifier, the family emergency. Delilah's brother, Jordan Oakes, had gone missing. Again. Don't you remember, Delilah? Maddie answered for me. I told you about a young woman I met in my pottery class a few years ago. I glanced around Maddie's stunningly decorated dining room. Casual comfort reminded the visitor she was, after all, a child of the 60s. Her own clay pieces were displayed on every surface, making the space unique. Playful colors blended with earth tones created a sense of warmth, just like Maddie. I, of course, had no potting talent whatsoever. Mucking about, as Maddie called it, wasn't my bag. I'd joined the class for one reason only— to rub elbows with a woman suspected by her employer of stealing pharmaceuticals to smuggle south of the border. My plan didn't work out. No sooner had I chatted the suspect up than she dropped the class, quit her job, and left town. Meanwhile, my world collided with Maddie's. She laughed openly at my ridiculous attempts to make clay art. Everything I touched came out looking like an ashtray. Ironic, since neither Aunt Rachel nor I smoked. Even after I dropped the class and came clean with Maddie about my reasons for signing up, we remained friends. I think in many ways Maddie is a kindred spirit. Although you'd never guess it to look at the two of us, I'm short and hardly sweet. A rough, tough cream puff, as described by an ex-boyfriend, with no taste to speak of and little in the way of artistic talent or grace. Maddie is tall, slender, and the picture of refinement. She takes pride in her keen eye and is able to charm the birds out of the trees. It would be hard not to like her. She smiles easily, laughs at everything I say, and cooks like a master, another skill I'm sorely lacking. She seldom complains. It was months before I began to get an inkling of her strained relationship with her son and daughter. 
It was much longer before I knew how bad things really were. I couldn't figure it out. Maddie was a joy to be around. What the hell was the story with her kids? Finally, I got the picture. Maddie had married their father when Delilah was 15 and Jordan only 10. A short time later, Richard was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. When he died, Delilah blamed Maddie. Jordan didn't blame anyone. He just shut down. Maybe he'd always had a bipolar disorder, but it wasn't an obvious problem until after Richard died. From that point on, Jordan's depression presented itself in a variety of behavioral problems. It began with poor marks and a regrettable circle of friends and flowered into drug addiction, alcoholism, and gambling. He'd disappeared twice before. He was 35, not bad-looking, judging by Maddie's photos, except for the darkness in his eyes. Jordan hadn't lived with Maddie since he'd dropped out of university. She tried to get help for him, but he'd resisted every effort. They'd argued constantly in those days. Delilah convinced Maddie that she was enabling Jordan's behavior by continuing to feed and house him. Maddie asked Jordan to leave. It was the hottest thing she'd ever done. She'd given her word to her dying husband to care for his children. It was all he'd ever asked of her. Sometimes life can break your heart. Yes, Delilah said, looking up from her notepad. I remember. You met in pottery class, and you're a private investigator. Is that right, Ms. Cannon? That's right, Ms. Oak. I didn't appreciate Delilah's tone. I could put on an attitude, too. Of course, given my petite stature and casual clothes as compared with her striking height and impeccable dress, my tone might be somewhat less impressive than hers. Can you help us find Jordan, Maddie said. Of course, I'll do what I can, Maddie. Just tell me when you last spoke with him and anything you can about his habits. Maddie went through the story again. I sipped my tea and made notes of my own. Last contact, telephone, home phone, two days before Christmas. Expected for dinner December 25th. No answer on home or cell phone since. What did the police say, I asked. They filed the report. They sent out a press release. There has been no response so far. Maddie poured more tea for Delilah. I put my hand over my cup. I had everything Maddie was able to give me, and frankly, I was tiring of Delilah's company. Do you have an extra set of keys for Jordan's apartment, I asked. I'd like to start there. Maddie reached into her purse. She struggled to remove a key from her ring and handed it to me. If you don't mind, I'll join you, Delilah said. Actually, I've discussed this with Penelope, Maddie said. I'd prefer if she went alone to Jordan's apartment. That way she can take her time and look for clues. She doesn't need us looking over her shoulder. But, Mom, it's been decided, Delilah. Maddie put her teacup down and walked me to the door. Once out of her stepdaughter's sight, she took my hands in hers. I don't know what you can do, she said, but thank you. It had been Maddie's idea to send me alone to Jordan's apartment. Whatever secrets her stepson might have, they were his. They were not to be shared with his judgmental sister. It was one thing for me, a stranger, 
to rifle through the details of his life. He wouldn't likely take too kindly to Delilah going through his things. I was grateful. I couldn't imagine doing a thorough job of it with Delilah at my side. The key turned smoothly in the lock. I opened Jordan's door, taking a moment to study the tidy foyer and main living area. Most drug addicts I've encountered in the course of my work, and there have been a surprising number, mostly runaways, are not capable of maintaining a decent living space. At first, I was surprised at the cleanliness and order, till I recalled that Maddie, not wanting Jordan to give over to sloth, had hired a regular cleaning lady. In the novels of yesteryear, when a P.I. enters a room that is part of his investigation, he'll usually move in a logical pattern. He'll pull on gloves so as not to disturb any evidence, and he'll take pains not to miss the slightest clue. There wasn't going to be anything of interest in this perfectly manicured environment. I locked the door behind me and stepped further into the apartment. Slowly, I made my way to the gleaming kitchen, the sparkling bathroom, the polished living room, and the perfectly made-up bedroom. Only one room held my interest. Some things don't change, like the appeal of a locked door. No private investigator can resist it. Enter me, it seems to command. Beyond this door are the clues you seek, the answers to your questions. I considered leaving Jordan's apartment without breaking into the locked room, but not seriously. I found a screwdriver in a toolbox in the laundry room. I had the lock off in minutes. I paused, holding the doorknob for a moment, savoring the sensation of imminent solution. Then I opened the door. As I expected, it was a den, a private office, so to speak the place where Jordan kept everything he really cared about in one great heaping mess. Papers, books, a television, a desk, a computer, all in no particular order. It was obvious the cleaning lady wasn't allowed in this room. I smiled. It seemed I'd discovered the real Jordan Oaks. I was grateful for yet another difference between modern investigative work and that done by the gumshoes of the past. In the last century, the investigator would spend hours sifting through this mess of papers and books, hoping for some scrap of evidence to fall out from the debris. I headed straight for the desk. The computer was already turned on. I jiggled the mouse to bring the monitor to life. Jordan's inbox winked at me, strutting on the desktop like a big fat turkey. I strolled down past Viagra and antidepressant ads, looking for anything of a personal nature. Bingo! An email from someone by the name of Scott, asking where the hell Jordan was and why he hadn't shown up to watch the game on Tuesday night. Another earlier message from Bill, saying he'd be by to collect. With the ominous command to cough up the full amount or else. That one was dated December 23rd. And one from someone called Julie, asking Jordan if he was mad about anything. She'd tried calling him, it said, but the voicemail wasn't working. Voicemail? Maybe it was full, I thought. I'd have a listen once I was done with the email. Jordan's PC was connected to a printer on top of a cabinet. 
I printed all the emails I thought might be relevant, going back to the week before Jordan disappeared. Then I checked out his deleted folder. Like many people, Jordan stored old emails there once he'd finished with them, rather than removing them permanently. One, in particular, was interesting. Jordan, we're waiting for you. Get your ass down here now. No sender name, but the auto signature attached was a logo for Zoe's Palace, a downtown strip club and known hangout for dealers. The message was received on December 24th at 8.25 p.m., the night before Jordan went missing. I printed it. I'd definitely be paying Zoe a visit. Next, I listened to Jordan's phone messages, taking care not to delete any in case he showed up alive and well and wanting to check his voicemail. As I'd thought, the voicemail was full. There were three messages offering superb duct cleaning services, two promising to install new windows and doors, and one asking for a contribution for the NDP, one from Julie, just asking him to call, and one from Bill. At least I assumed it was Bill. He didn't leave a name, but he did leave an amount. Fifteen hundred. Cash. To be paid in full. And he left a time. Seven p.m. I'll be there at seven, the message said. Have the fifteen hundred ready in cash. Or else. The voicemail had tagged the message as received December 24th. It was the or else that gave Bill away. It was the same wording he'd used in his email. As cliched as it was, it was still too much coincidence for this girl. I set the receiver onto its cradle, resting my hand on it as I tried to piece together a likely scenario. Maybe Jordan didn't have the 1500. Maybe he'd gone to ground to avoid meeting with Bill. Not that Bill wasn't a nice guy. His voice sounded nice. Well... Not so much nice as scary. Yes, definitely scary. Had Jordan decided to take a Christmas vacation rather than spending Christmas Eve with an obvious mob muscle man? Or had he dropped in at Zoe's palace to meet the gang for a drink? Maybe he was still there. I glanced around the room, taking in the stacks of paper on every surface, It would be a shame not to spend at least a little time going through them, since I was here anyway. I reached for a page. A look at it told me Jordan was paying his phone bill, so he presumably had an income. The next item was his internet invoice, likewise paid up to date, as were his credit card, his online gambling tab, and his cable TV. This was one highly functioning drug addict. So why duck out on Bill? Surely he could have put off paying his credit card for a month. That payment alone would have covered what the mob man was asking for. It didn't make any sense. I looked again at the stack of paid invoices. All had been paid well in advance of the due date. There was only one reasonable explanation. Maddie must be paying his bills. I'd bet my skinny jeans on it. I pulled my smartphone out of my pocket and dialed her number. Her voice sounded strange on the phone, like she didn't want to speak freely. Is Delilah still there, I asked. Yes, we're about to have dinner. Can she hear me? No. 
Okay, in that case, I'll ask you a question, and you just say yes or no. Maddie, were you paying Jordan's bills? Yes. Does Delilah know that? No. Were there any gambling debts? Yes. Big ones? No. I have to go now. We're having dinner. Maddie put the phone down, and I heard the click. Then, almost imperceptibly, I heard a second click. Damn. Delilah must have been listening on an extension. I opened a notes file on my smartphone. Using the tiny keyboard, I tried to map out a plan. It seemed highly unlikely that we'd find Jordan, at least until he wanted to be found. But I'd made a promise to Maddie, and I intended to keep it. My notes were rough, but I knew what they meant. First, I'd have to pay a visit to Zoe's, if only to find out whether Jordan ever did show up there. I'd have to get in touch with Julie by replying to her email and ask to meet with her. She might have some insight into Jordan's circle of friends. I'd email Bill while I was at it, just a cryptic note from Jordan to see what reaction I got. I needed to have a straight talk with Maddie. She said the gambling debts were not large, but of course she hadn't been free to elaborate. I had a sneaking feeling between the drugs, gambling, and whatever else Jordan had been up to that Maddie was footing a pretty significant bill. It probably wasn't hurting her. My sense was that she had a solid financial buffer. Just the same, Maddie had a good reason not to want Delilah to know she'd been supporting Jordan. Big Sister was not going to like it. Hmm, I wondered. Was that the first time Delilah had listened in on Maddie's conversations? My Aunt Rachel has a saying, A goose will honk and a duck will quack. And Delilah was a sneak. She'd already proven that. Maybe she knew about Maddie paying Jordan's bills. How would she feel about seeing her inheritance being siphoned off by a drug-addicted gambler who couldn't keep himself in toilet paper? My guess was she'd be ticked. All those years of waiting for Daddy's money to come through, patiently watching Stepmom live the good life of fine clothes and pottery classes and luxury living, knowing there was plenty to come in time, only to see her baby brother squander the lion's share. Would anything be left for Delilah, or would she get the short end of the stick again? Yes, I'd definitely pay a visit to Zoe's palace. But first... My bike was parked in the visitor's lot. I started the ignition and donned my helmet, heading back in the direction I'd come from. When I arrived at Maddie's, Delilah had already left. Maddie didn't come to the door when I rang the bell. I dug in my pocket for my keychain, quickly locating the extra key Maddie had given me in case she locked herself out. Delilah wouldn't have known I had it. How could Delilah know that? If anything happened to Maddie, it was me rather than her stepchildren she placed her trust in. I found Maddie on the kitchen floor. She'd splashed tea on the tabletop when she fell. She was still breathing. Beside the teacup was a single white sheet of paper with one sentence scrawled in Maddie's usually graceful handwriting. I'm sorry, Jordan. I dialed 911. The paramedics were able to revive Maddie and induce vomiting. It took a while, but at the hospital they got her stomach pumped and were able to save her life. 
She told the police how Delilah must have slipped something into her tea. I guess Delilah thought it would go down as suicide. After all, Maddie was grieving over the loss of her troubled stepson. She was experiencing guilt over her failure to keep Jordan on the straight and narrow. We later learned that Jordan had visited his sister on Christmas Eve. She must have thought it strange that he could afford to bring her an expensive gift, given that he didn't have a job. But of course she knew where the money had come from. She'd killed Jordan that night and somehow dragged his body to her car. He was slight thanks to years of substance abuse and poor eating habits. She'd driven to the countryside and found an isolated spot to drop him off. He wouldn't be found till spring, if then. At least Maddie's money would be safe from his abuse. And now, with Maddie out of the way, Delilah would finally have her inheritance. It might have worked. She might have gotten away with it. Lucky for Maddie, though, she has a friend in low places. And that has been Low Roller by Donna Carrick from North on the Yellowhead and Other Crime Stories and the earlier collection titled Knowing Penelope. Let it rot. Coming up next for our listeners, we've got a terrific interview with author Diamond Wilson. Diamond is a self-professed adventure junkie, an eater of worms, and a world traveler of the highest order. Her books include the Quest for the Queen series, The Caves of Qumran, and Dangers in the Desert. Also, she's the author of the Little Words Big Ideas series, which includes Going Bananas and Antithesis Labyrinth, as well as the Bring Your Mike series and The Sand Sculptor. Please give a hearty dead-to-rights welcome to deadly friend Diamond Wilson. Good morning, Diamond. It's Donna. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And welcome to Dead to Rights. Thank you so much. I'm excited to, to talk with you this morning. It's a beautiful Saturday morning. Is it nice oh, there, too? It really is. It's been so sunny uh, in Montana. One of the great things is, even though it's cold, here. Uh, it's, been, it's been pretty warm for February, and we get a lot of sunshine. It's nice to be home. <laughs> nice to be home for a weekend. Yes, yes, it is always nice to be home for a weekend. That's true. It's been really cold here, too. Uh, you're in Montana. I'm in Toronto. It's been uh, cold, but today is quite clear, so I'm always grateful for a clear day in February. Oh, yeah. oh no. It's, just, it's, just, it's reawakening and reminds you that spring is coming. Yes. Now, what part of Montana are you in? What's the terrain like there? You know, we are in Bozeman, Montana, right in the valley. So beautiful, snow-capped mountains, the face snow-capped almost year around, you know, the year long. And oh. uh, in the valley, it's very green, and we have lots of wildflowers, a lot of animals, wildlife. Sounds so glorious. Stunning. 
Yes, yes, a good place to to find your muse, I think, and and, uh, settle into writing. (laughs) Um, Diamond Wilson, for our listeners, Diamond is a a writer of a number of different kinds of books, a couple of series on the go, and I've never met Diamond, but I have gone to your website, and uh, tell us your website address before I forget. Absolutely, thanks for asking. www.diamondwilson.com That's simple, just diamondwilson.com. Where I'm going with this is that a simple glance at your website makes it really clear to any observer that you've got a passion for adventure. And uh, I wanted to ask you, can you tell our listeners about the most fun adventure you've ever had? And can you also tell us about an adventure that went south on you that um, might have proven to be either harrowing or stressful or both? Absolutely. That's the thing about travel and adventure is you end up getting a little mix of that. I think if you if you aren't having some harrowing and stressful adventures on your travels, uh, you're probably not doing it right. You're not pushing yourself, you know. And that's that's what I love so much. Uh, my first trip out of the country, I was a college student, and I went backpacking through a couple of countries with one of my good friends, and it was stressful. It was harrowing. This was in the time before smartphones, so we didn't have Google Maps. Uh, internet was not rampant like it is today. So we felt kind of um, kind of lost over there. But I tell you, when we started making strides, that's when we started growing and relying on each other, relying on ourselves. And really the kindness of strangers is something that travel and adventure has taught me so much about. Uh, that, that's very true. I think really that uh, people, when you travel, do tend to lend a hand. I mean, of course, you have to be careful, but um, I find that when you do travel, people tend to lend a hand. But tell me, where were you on that first adventure? So we were in uh, Spain, France, and Italy. We actually went and flew into Rome first, and uh, Italy was great. We felt like we, we got into our niche, and just as we started to get into our niche and understand how things work, it was time for us to leave and go to France. And I remember crossing the border and having this amazing moment because everything in France felt so different than everything we had just learned in Italy. I tried to pick up the, uh, the payphone to call my mom. I couldn't figure out how to work the payphone in France. And that's, uh, I'm going to stop you right there because <laughs> for anybody listening abroad, I, I want to tell you, uh-huh. I am in Canada. And Diamond is in the United States, and they are both huge countries. And geographically, they are quite different from region to region, but socially and culturally, they tend to be somewhat similar. I mean, you can't paint with too Uh wide a brush, but things like finding a washroom or going to a pay phone or knowing how to, to shop, those things are universal throughout our countries. And so for us, going to Europe is something quite different because these little tiny regions, each one's so very different from the other. And yes. And, and, and you, get, you, you experience so much diversity and so it feels like so little space. But yes. one of the great things about Europe is the transportation system. I love that. I love being able to take a high-speed train in a country and as a train between two countries. I think it's phenomenal. I love yes. that. Yes, yes. incorporate that throughout our state. That'd be amazing. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I, I agree with you on that. Uh, we had a very dear friend who... We're all getting a little older now, but when she was a very young woman, she came to Canada as an au pair, and she came from Holland. Oh. And um, 
She decided that before her job started, she was going to take a train from one part of Canada to the other because she loved to travel in Europe by train. And so she got on in uh, the Cabot Trail in the East Coast, and um, she traveled all the way out to Vancouver. And she said in her entire life she had never been before or since so depressed because she couldn't fathom in her mind how there could be so much space between one town and the next. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that the, the, the distance that we experience over here as well, it, it does feel um, so strong. I always tell people when they ask questions about Montana, we have more cows than people still. I love it. And, uh, <laughs> I've lived in Saskatchewan, <laughs> so I know the feeling. <laughs> you know, um, the, the opportunity to go and travel and to experience, um, you know, some of the hard times I, that I experienced were not uh, not being able to confirm a place to stay so you get to your room at night and you realize it's been given away and there's nothing else available. We spent one night uh, in Spain on the beach and it was pouring rain and I have never been so completely sodden in my life. Oh, and, uh, like, a, like an episode of Survivor. <laughs> yeah, that's what it felt like. Oh my gosh, except without the film crew. <laughs> I know. Let's try this again. Let's go back for the first time with a group of, uh, of cameras on, with some of these young students as they, as they embark on this journey, for sure. Yes. Uh, another <laughs> thing that I noticed about you when I was uh, visiting your website is that you share a passion with me for languages, except you've successfully learned languages, which I um, have not so far been able to quite master. Um, you speak five Aww. languages, and I think that languages and learning languages tells us a lot about a culture. Um, which languages do you speak, and what prompted you to study them? Sure. Well, uh, the process is difficult to take heart. That it's a matter of um, exchanging information. I uh, my first language is English, and my second language was Mandarin. Um, I I learned Mandarin from friends who spoke no English while I was living in Bozeman, Montana. Go figure, pretty small town and not as diverse as you would think. Um, so my Mandarin is now out of practice because it's been nearly twenty years since I was using it on a regular basis. But I, what I recognized in learning Mandarin was, I can do this. I can. And the world just opened up to me. So many people's opinions and ideas and advice and culture and the richness that is humanity yes. um, opened itself up to me by learning a second language. Yes, so it, I, it opens I, uh, not I, only I, regions of your brain, but it opens cultural doors for you and... Um, it's just amazing. I mean, Mandarin, along with English, Mandarin and English are the two, considered to be the two most difficult mm. and rich languages on earth. And um, I know I, it's one of the languages that I, I did study for a while and oh, never mastered. <laughs> My children it's were studying so Mandarin, and so I, I wanted to study along with them because I found it fascinating. Oh, Tana, that's so cool. That's really neat. Okay, so what was the hardest part for you about Mandarin in particular? Uh, the initial conceptual acceptance of how Mandarin works, the written language, being a writer, of course, I'm drawn to the written word more than to anything else. Um, and Mandarin, for anyone who doesn't know this, 
it, the written language is based on strokes, not on phonetics. And so the strokes, um, to give you an example, the dictionary, the Chinese dictionary, you find a word based on the number of strokes that it contains. And um, the phonetics have nothing at all to do with what the word is. Uh, it, it's based on early pictorials, so it developed out of early pictorials. So a picture of the moon became the moon. So, yeah. So I found that the whole concept of it, going from a phonetic language to a pictorial language. I found that to be a real stretch. Oh, yeah, for sure. And my writing is not great. It never really was. But, you know, um, you can, I have some friends that I text with in Mandarin. And so you can now cheat the system a little bit with your smartphone. Ah. And it'll, it's, it's a great way to practice um, something called uh, oh, little I've seen friends using it at work because I'm in Toronto and, and uh, we have a really a really strong Chinese community. So I work with a lot of Chinese folks, and I've seen them texting and emailing to each other in Mandarin, uh, of course, using um, simplified characters, and it's yeah. just fascinating. One of these days, I'll give it a try. Absolutely, I think that that's uh, that's that's awesome. The uh, Mandarin concept of thinking is really neat as well. And I think that by learning a language, it, it allows us a picture window into some of the thought systems and some of the benefits that other cultures provide. And um, I went on to study German, Spanish, and French. And I feel like uh, studying those various languages allows you to pick and choose for yourself what you want to adopt in your culture going forward. Yes. That has been life-changing. Yes, yes, exactly. And as a writer, too, it opens you up to the ability to develop characters that might not be the characters who live next door to you. Yes, what a great point. That's true. Yes, yes. That's so true. Now, getting on to your work. Yeah, getting on to your work. You've described your little words series as... um, this very, I'm going to read, I'm going to read for our listeners what you've said about Little Words, Big Ideas, book one called Going Bananas. This very short story personifies anger and how it interacts with other emotions in the psyche's ecosystem. Now, I have to tell you, Diamond, you don't sound like an angry person. You sound like a very bright, enthusiastic <laughs> person, but I, I think we all have some anger. Tell me about, about what you mean when you say that. Sure. Uh, Going Bananas is actually um, based on a journal entry that I had written, and it was my brother who encouraged me to to start taking some of the journal entries and and sharing those with other people because they're much more, uh, they're not quite as concrete as some of the things that I write. And uh, I took a course at the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture that encouraged us to get in touch with inner dialogue. Yes. not be afraid of expressing odd uh, and, and the archetypal truths that can be pulled from these types of writings. So Going Bananas is the story of a, of a peaceful world where everything is operating the way that it's supposed to, and in that world lives a gorilla. <laughs> and the gorilla, <laughs> he, he, 
he crosses all of these boundaries. He crosses the stream. He can climb, you know, through the trees. He can lay, lie down in the glass. Grass. He can do various things. But the gorilla moves while the ecosystem stays uh, where it is supposed to be. And I feel like that is us. We have all of these parts of ourselves and of our psyche that we could consider um, concrete, real, consistent. Something like, hey, I'm a happy person, I'm a positive person. That may be one of your landscape features. Yes. And yet the gorilla can pass through that landscape, can't he? Yes, that and that is really wonderful, is Diamond. That That's just a wonderful Thank way you. to sum up the way that we see our inner worlds because um, for our listeners who are readers rather than writers, you may know, you probably have heard writer friends talk about the inner landscape, but you might not really get it. It's it's a place where we as writers have to spend a great deal of our time, and um, we have to yes. get to know ourselves pretty darn well. And so I love your approach to it, yes. Diamond. Why? Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, um, and it's been cool to have other people read that and and give me positive feedback. You know those. Self-expressions are always a little scary, so yes, uh, it, was, it was an exercise in courage for me as well. I would think so. As a writer, going into those places takes the greatest courage of all, really, because there's a few things. One is we've learned to keep those feelings to ourselves. That's one. And the second one is those things are so deeply part of us it's almost like our sexuality, if you'll pardon me saying. It's like our religion. It's like our preferred dress. All these things are so deeply a part of ourselves. For women, hair. Put it down to your hair. How you wear your hair is so deeply a part of you as a woman, whether you want to recognize that or not. And when we put that piece of ourselves that is so intrinsic out there to the world, how will it be judged? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that's Absolutely. where how? the courage lies. Yes. How are others going to change their opinion of me because I have been honest? Not yes. because I've become someone else, but because I've been honest about who I am. Exactly. And, uh, that, that sense of vulnerability, I'm still learning. Brene Brown did a, a, a great TED Talk on that and um, on vulnerability. I don't remember the name of it right now, but I've watched it several times and I keep encouraging, hey, let's go for it. Let's be vulnerable. <laughs> yes, and take that deep dive into the internal pool. Exactly. Um, yes. Now, on a, I, I suspect a lighter, uh, lighter note, the Quest for the Queen series. Um, it looks to uh-huh. me, now I haven't read it, I, I'm always honest with our listeners, I haven't read it, but I have looked at it carefully online to see what it was about, and it looks to me like it would appeal to lovers of historical fiction or people who love time studies and time travel. Am I right in that? Absolutely. I think historical fiction and mystery, I call it my history mystery series, where those two come in and they are combined. Um, so this series is a young adult audience is um, who it's written for. The characters are in their teens. Mm-hmm. And an ancient Essene relic is missing. So we have Maylee Payton, her brother Smith, and a handsome Israeli teen named Rafi who are on a quest to find this relic and protect it. So the story takes us into Israel and in the second book into Egypt. Uh, throughout the course of the series, we have various villains. Uh, there's a secret order 
that Peter's on the edge of good and evil. And so our readers and our characters here are forced to, to pick away the fat, as you will, and get into what really matters. And um, being set in the Middle East, I think it's important that the readers question cultural identity boundaries yes. and religious differences. So that, for me, is so much fun to write because there, this, is a, this is a rich place to write from. And one of my favorite things about the series is, um, you know, there are Christians, there are Messianic Jews, there are Jews, there are Muslims, and they all are allowed to have their own beliefs, but they still find a way to work together. Yes. And that's a dream of mine for all of us, to find a way to work together and kind of tying back into travel and cultural awareness when we see the kindness of people who are not like us. You've hit on something that people need to hear right now, Diamond. People in this time and in this place, without becoming political, because I won't do that. Um, I have too much respect for, <laughs> for you. I don't know you and, you know. But people need to hear that the more you travel outside yourself and outside your own personal realm, the more tolerance, the more patience, the more real, genuine love you're going to have for people. So to our listeners... You know, get out there. And if you can't get out there for Absolutely. any reason, I mean, some people are housebound, and that may be why they're listening to us right now, because they may be housebound. Sure. But get out there online. There's there's no excuse. Sure. You know, get out there in whatever way you can and, and embrace the world. Absolutely. I think that that's so key, so important. And with the technology that we have these days, getting out there is a little bit easier. Uh, I'm a Spanish professor as well, so my students, check out, uh, they spend an hour a week on the app or a site called We Speak. And anybody who's interested, uh, I would recommend you check it out. You can practice the free website and you can practice with people all over the world who are trying to practice other languages. And so, what is the website uh, called again, Diamond? It's We, we Speak, uh, spelled W-E-S-P-E-K-E.com. We speak, and it's E K E at the end. That's very interesting. Yes, Thank you. Thank uh -huh. you for that. <laughs> yes. So yes, you've got an exotic setting. You've got young adults traveling. You've got a relic. I was speaking with an author a couple of weeks ago who wrote an antiquities series. So that's that seems uh -huh. to be a, a a topic that has a lot of appeal to people. Um, what tips? Sure. Can you offer to any of our listeners who might be struggling to complete their first manuscript or to find their voices or really any kind of a tip that has to do with the writing industry? Sure. You know, the, um, the way that we write a manuscript or the way that we learn a language or the way that we finish uh, painting the rooms in a house that we're working on, all of these are huge, daunting, overwhelming projects. And I think if we look at the project as a whole, it's easy for us to find discouragement. So I encourage people that I'm working with to set habits and follow the process. If you paint one square foot a day in a room, at some point, the whole room will be painted. And if you write 500 words a day, at some point, you're going to get to the 60 or the 80,000 that you need. If you practice in a language on a daily basis, interacting and engaging, at some point you are going to say, I am communicating. 
meeting. So if you're working on a manuscript right now and, and you've gotten to a place where you think, I can't do this anymore, I would encourage you put one word in front of the other, yes. keep on writing, and, and, and go and take pauses for yourself as well. Read great books and be reminded that this is possible. Other people have done it. Yes. And, and uh, they, let's be honest, people are very much the same. There is no magic degree. There is no magic experience that makes somebody more capable than someone else. And this is something I'm passionate about. I think it's easy for us to assume that the greats are the greats because they've been given some special gift. Yes. And that's something I don't agree with. Uh, I think that talent is raw and it's there, but it's no good to us if we don't have the habits that are required to carry that talent into production. And there are a lot of um, mediocre, talent-wise people who make it big because they just stick at it. They have that tenacity. So I would encourage anybody working on a manuscript, A, break it down. Be proud of yourself for little successes. It will get easier as you go along and you have a pattern of success. B, take a look at other people who have done it. Read all a variety of things. If you just read, you know, J.K. Rowling, who I love. She's one of my favorites. Oh, same here. Same here. (laughs) It's hard to compare yourself to her. But you have J.K. Rowling, and you have all of these authors across the spectrum. Yes. one that you say, I could write like that. You are speaking exactly exactly the way my husband and I spoke when I first started into novels because, like many writers, I've been a writer in my head for as long as I can remember. I, I remember when I was about six telling my mother I was going to be a writer. I've always written poetry. I've always dabbled with short stories. But when I decided to take novels seriously, I came up against exactly what you're saying, that when you look at a whole project, it's overwhelming. And you do need to break it down. This is a very practical skill that you need to learn. You can't expect to to polish your skills unless you practice the art. Practicing the art comes first. Acquiring and and, uh, polishing and bettering your skills comes second. Great writers are not born. They don't just land in the middle of a cornfield like Superman. It doesn't happen (laughs) that way. And I always say the first 300 pages are a real bitch, you know. (laughs) And after that, it does start to get better. You find your voice. You find your footing, you know, your inky footprint, you know. Yes. And Mm -hmm. the only way to decide of greatness is by making some mistakes along the way. You just cannot prepare for everything. Yes. And so I know I have learned so much about how to sit down and write from sitting down and not being able to write well. Yes. <laughs> and then from finally getting through it and going back and looking at it and being like, oh, well, this is what's going on here. You know, this part is cheap. This part isn't well thought out. This part is uh, distracting. Now, how can I take the essence of that? And use it. Um, I, I want to share one little story about how to how to do this, how to write a novel. I went truffle hunting recently and came back with a handful of white truffles from Oregon, the mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And we decided with my best friend that we were going to infuse some products at home with the truffle essence. And my friend hands me a butter 
uh, uh, we're going to make butter. She hands me a, a jar with a lid that's half full of cream, and she says, here, shake this. And I'm not sure if she's just trying to get rid of me. <laughs> I'm not trying to infuse the trouble. But I shook that jar, and I shook that jar, and about halfway through it, I really lost my momentum. I felt discouraged. And so we were joking around about it, giving ourselves a pep talk about, you just got to shake through the whipped cream. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us, we have to keep shaking through the whipped cream. Yes. We think, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I, I, I'm never going to get butter. Yes. And then, bam, all of a sudden, the jar gets heavy. The butter condenses. It pulls away from the edges. And they're like, I just shook butter. Yes. And writing a novel, anything we want to do is about that butter experience. So if you're struggling with your, with your manuscript, buy some heavy whipping cream, put it in a mason jar, shake it, and experience that process on a big scale, on a small scale as to what writing is like on a big scale. That is really well said, Diamond, and it's true. And I, I do say, look to your other accomplishments in life to give you courage, because oh. we all have accomplishments, either large or small, and we didn't get those accomplishments easily. Other people may think they came easily to us, but they didn't. So look to those accomplishments right. to inform you on how you're going to accomplish this one. Yes, absolutely. Well said, Donna. That's a, a key factor there. Take your little successes, take your big successes, and start piling them up behind you as your support system. Yes, sure. and climb that mountain eventually. Yes. <laughs> Diamond, it's been really a treat having you on, and I've never met you before. We've never even spoken before, but it's been a delight speaking with you, I must say. Well, thank you. You as well. I, I'm so curious about your languages that you have studied. Oh. <laughs> share a little bit about that if you have time. Yes, yes. Well, we'll go offline, and I'll tell you my sad language story. Um, we're going to go offline now, so thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the weekend, Diamond. I've got to shout out a big thank you to today's guest, author Diamond Wilson. Be sure to tune in next week when we bring you author Miriam Cobras all the way from Hamburg, Germany. Coming up over the next few weeks, we have discussions with Alberta author and really funny guy, Kevin Thornton, California author and professional editor, Tony Rakestraw, and the Toronto author of the hit novel, Stinking Rich, Rob Brunet. At Dead to Rights, we rely on your support to help us raise awareness of these fabulous authors and connect them with readers internationally. Please subscribe and rate the podcast at your favorite podcast app. We'll soon be available at YouTube, so watch for us there. Tell all your deadly friends to look for us for short stories, industry chats, and so much more. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us at the Dead to Rights Facebook page or tweet us at Dead to Rights Pod and send us your comments. If you're a published author and would like to be featured on Dead to Rights, email me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and just say, Donna, schedule me for an interview. Our Dead to Rights theme song, Eyes of Gold, and all story scores are brought to you by composer and performer Ted Carrick. You can stay up to date on all of Ted's new music at his YouTube channel. Thank you for joining us. We're nothing without our listeners, and we love bringing you these great episodes.
a dusty road, a man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rock.